0: This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network.
1: Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Bob Ambrogi from Massachusetts. And unfortunately, I'm once again without my co-host, J. Craig Williams, who's finally making his trip back from Australia, so he should be with us next week. Well, today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the legal rights and responsibilities of broadcasters. We uh, have uh, two media professionals and media lawyers uh, and a civil rights lawyer joining us today to talk about this. Uh, And, of course, the context is uh, what's been the news this week, all Imus, all the time on on the news media within the blogosphere. Uh, Just by way of background, of course, uh, in case you've been in a hole for the week, uh, on April 4th, Don Imus, uh, the radio talk show host, went on the air and made what have been uh, generally accepted as derogatory remarks about the Rutgers women's basketball team. It's caused a groundswell of controversy. There's been a major backlash from the black community, from women's groups, even from advertisers and, and others calling for the firing of Imus. Uh, this week, after many protests, MN, MSNBC dropped the, the broadcast of his radio show, the, the television broadcast of his radio show, and then yesterday, CBS indicated that it would discontinue his his radio broadcast. So we're going to explore some of the legal issues uh, raised by all of this week, all of this news with with our guests this week, starting with uh, Eileen O'Connor. Eileen uh, O'Connor is in the Washington, D.C. office of Aura Carrington and Sutcliffe. She's a member of the firm's litigation group. She's a longtime veteran journalist before becoming a lawyer, uh, working for ABC News and uh, for CNN uh, in London, Moscow, Tokyo, Washington. she uh, joined uh, she was a chief researcher and producer for ABC News Peter Jennings overseas from 1981 to 1986. She was C- Moscow bureau chief for CNN, uh, then White House correspondent and national correspondent. Uh, and uh, she's now a, a, an attorney at Ora Carrington and Sutcliffe in Washington and also practices in their Moscow practice. Welcome to the show, Eileen. Thank you so much. Uh, our next uh, guest is a, is a returning guest on this program, Norman Pattis. Norm is uh, one of Connecticut's best known criminal defense and civil rights attorneys. Uh, he has his own practice in Connecticut. Uh, in addition, he's uh, an accomplished lawyer, uh, an accomplished writer who writes the blog Crime and Federalism, and also has uh, another blog on his on his law firm website. Uh, he recently formed his own firm, where he, of course, concentrates in criminal defense, civil rights, appellate work, and representing lawyers in professional disputes. He's argued cases in the United States Court of Appeals for the Second and Sixth Circuits and appeared before the United States Supreme Court's in Court in prisoners' rights litigation. Welcome to the show, Norm.
2: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
1: And last today, joining us is Sandra S. Barron, uh, Sandra is an attorney, and she's also the executive director of the Media Law Resource Center in New York City. In addition to her private practice, she's served as uh, senior managing attorney at NBC and is associate general counsel of the Educational Broadcasting Company in New York and was counsel for Public Broadcasting's American Playhouse. She's taught media law to journalism students and spoken at numerous forums. She was co-author of the second edition of Libel, Slander, and Related Problems, Written articles for the Media Law Resource Center and other publications on media law topics. Welcome to the show, Sandy. Thank you. Well, uh, S- Sandy Baron, let's let's start with you and and just ask uh, what are uh, what are the responsibilities of, of a broadcaster um, uh, in the face of of what happened last over the last couple of weeks with
3: with this incident. Well, it's a a question that's sort of hard to answer from my perspective as a lawyer, because it seems to me that the specific legal issues that the broadcaster is looking at are relatively few. Um, That said, broadcasters clearly look beyond the law in terms of how they run their businesses, and in this instance, there's no question but that that's what NBC and CBS did in deciding to end Imus's, uh tenure on their on their air.
1: So then, what you're saying is that this was not a there was not a, a legal consideration that would have driven them to do this, but uh, a business commercial consideration.
3: I think that's right. I mean, I'm sure at some point the NBC lawyers took a look at whatever contract they had with CBS to carry Imus, and I'm sure the CBS lawyers took at least a passing glance at the clauses of their contract with Imus himself. Um, but I think, and, and perhaps this surprises people, but I, I think there were relatively few specific legal provisions, statutory or regulatory, that either of these um, uh, operations took a look at.
1: Well, Eileen, let's come back to you. You're uh, you've been in uh, uh, broadcasting for uh, many years as a broadcaster. You're you're now a lawyer. Uh, what is your perspective on this?
4: Well, I, I agree with um, with you that the it's. I don't think that there's actually a legal case against um, Don Imus because he is protected by the First Amendment. And even though you could say that that is irresponsible, abhorrent speech. It doesn't rise even necessarily to hate speech uh, in the sense that it doesn't necessarily incite any kind of violence against another group or individual. And so his comments are protected by the First Amendment. I think, though, as a journalist, as in a, you know, I was a journalist who was an, a news correspondent, so the standards under which I reported were far different from the standards under which a Don Imus or Rush Limbaugh or a Glenn Beck report. They alleged to be giving their opinions. And as opinions, they seem to be more protected uh, from uh, any kind of um, libel suits, because as a as a correspondent, I always had to be looking at the libel laws and seeing if my stories were balanced and objective, and if I did not Um, I needed to adhere to the New York Times standard um, in the famous New York Times case where there is no um, malice and disregard for, uh, you know, malicious disregard for the truth. Um, And so I think that he is always expressing an opinion, and that's how they end up protecting themselves under the First Amendment and under libel laws. I mean, I don't know if there's any kind of case that the girls could make on defamation uh, against him, but I'm, you know, that would be something for them to look at. And I also think that under his contract, you know, he was—I would I find it difficult for them to fire him under his contract. I don't know what his contract terms are, but obviously, this is the kind of speech he's been—he's been saying for years against one group or another, and that's allegedly how he was getting ratings and advertising and making money for these networks. So. It would be interesting to see what his contract terms were and if, in fact, they were able to actually fire him. Um, The news reports say that he was taken off the air. That's not necessarily the same thing as firing him. They may still be having to pay out his contract.
1: Yeah, I haven't seen anything about that, but that's an interesting point because, obviously, that's exactly what they hired him for in the first place is because he's controversial. And, obviously, he he would have a contract. I, I don't know we can we can talk more about that and I'd like to talk more about these issues but let's let's bring Norm Patterson into the conversation as well and Norm I I know you've you've written uh at least a, a few posts about this uh, in recent days uh, I wonder if you could sum up for us your take on on this controversy
2: yeah I, I've been less fascinated or interested in in claims that the the basketball team may have against Imus. I've I've gotten a lot of calls from people wondering what claims Imus may have against the employer, and some are private folks who aren't attorneys asking about his First Amendment rights. And I don't think his First Amendment rights are implicated at all. I mean, he's there at the sufferance of his employer, bound by the terms of his contract. Maybe there was some sort of decency clause or three strikes provision, wherein if he was warned about certain types of speech a number of times, he could be some you know summarily executed or, or removed from the air. Um, But I I think that the the networks were unfortunately within their bounds to remove him. And and I say unfortunately not because I approve of what he said. Um, I neither approve or disapprove of it. I mean, that's who Imus is. Um, He's made a name for himself with irreverent speech. And from my perspective, independent of the law at least, I I regret his passing. Uh, I don't listen to him often. Um, I've listened to him from time to time, and he's, he's a nice counterweight to the sort of NPR, all things are sweet reason and the gathering together of reasonable minds. I, I sometimes want to be provoked, needled, and prodded, and that was Imus's place in the market.
1: Well, you went so far on your blog as to say he was lynched.
2: I think he was. I mean, I, I you know, I. Imus has made other remarks in a similar vein, and I heard an interesting interview with someone about that this morning, but it's hard for me to sit back calmly and watch Al Sharpton call for his uh, firing when Sharpton was one of the prime instigators in the Tawana Brawley mess, um, and has yet to pay the defamation judgment against him when he called the, the Suffolk County District Attorney both a racist and a rapist. So, I mean, that, that's you know, that's it's it's hard for me to take the the call for Imus's um, execution seriously when it's raised by the likes of Al Sharpton. And so, I think it was a lynching. Imus's remarks were unfortunate. Um, but he wasn't listening. You know, no one was compelled to listen, um, and I'm sure worse or different things are said by others, and they're held to different standards. So he was toppled. Um, I'm sure he'll be back. Um, don't know that I'll listen. Um, <laughs> well, um, it, I
1: mean, it sounds like what everybody's saying is that uh, while he may have had a First Amendment right to say this, he he certainly didn't have a First Amendment right to keep his job after saying it.
2: That's I agree correct. With that. I'm, I, when I heard there were going to be two media law people here, I thought, "Gosh, I'm 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 going to get schooled here. I don't know what I'm talking about." But I was relieved to hear that because I'm not aware of a legal doctrine that says you have a right to be obnoxious in private employment.
1: <laughs> well, Sandra Barron, how about what's your perspective on that?
3: Well, I think that's correct. I, I mean, you know, the, the the First Amendment is largely a guarantee that the government won't try to censor um, speech, and, and it had the government tried to step in and Take Don Imus off the air. Uh, I think you would have heard an uproar, um, a very substantial uproar from everyone, whether they agreed with Imus or not. Um, but when it comes to his relationship with his private employer, uh, the First Amendment, I think has it, it, it is not seriously implicated. Um, it would undoubtedly fall back on um, his contract and the the public opinion. Um, and whether taking IMUs off the air is going to cause more pain than keeping IMUs on the air. I, I thought one of the interesting things about all of this was that I hadn't realized IMUs had been on the air for 40 years, mm. and the difference in, I think it was in the New York Times, they were noting the, the difference in, in the management and the difference in the power structure generally in advertisers and in the network that now includes women and minorities, um, the difference in sensitivities. The fact that the web was the place where this was first spotted, if you will, and made public, um, it is a different world that people are operating in, and interestingly, we, we, we try to keep track of these cases, or at least keep an eye on them, and, and make note of them to some degree, and we're seeing an awful lot more of the quote-unquote shock jocks, generally on a local level, Um being suspended, being thrown off the air for outrageous behavior, far more than I would have said would have happened even five and maybe ten years ago.
4: Which actually I think Sandra's right. I mean, and I think it's actually kind of uh, helpful. In fact, when you look at the public discourse, if the public, and I think that that's what his employers are reacting to, was public outcry, public dissent, which said we are going to vote with uh, what we think about this speech with, you know, by turning off the dial, by turning off the show, which therefore meant that the advertisers who had advertised were not going to be getting the listeners that they had wanted to through their advertisements, as well as the embarrassment factors for those advertisers, looking at the public outcry, that's what they were listening to. But what's interesting, too, is I think this could overall be rather helpful uh, and the web is certainly playing a part of this, and bloggers and websites that are monitoring these things and passing them around to people are saying, you know, shouldn't you be outraged? And I think a lot of people are outraged, and it may be helpful in the public discourse only in that um, if you can get away from these kind of cross debates that go on on cable television, these screaming, I call them screaming news shows, perhaps the public discourse and political solutions can get more... Uh, back to the middle where really decisions generally end up being made. Um, I know at CNN it used to really bother me sometimes when we had the show called Talk Back Live, and they would purposely put on very polarizing uh, uh, guests. And I would say, well, why don't you have on so-and-so who's quite reasonable on this issue and has some very good ideas? Well, it's not good television. It doesn't get ratings. doesn't get eyeballs because it's not um, – it's not. It's not good television. It's not people screaming at each other.
2: Now, I, I hear that, and I think that's an important consideration. But I think in terms of this,
4: you
2: know, neutering Imus because of a flip remark is being held by some to be what you suggest—that that, that is uh, elevating of the public discourse. But it, it elevates it by banishing. An honest reflection of a racial attitude, and and an unsavory racial attitude. And so, my fear is that as as everything begins to compress toward the center, or converge toward the center, everything sounds alike. So we either get screaming ninnies calling for Imus's hide, or Imus screaming, or we get sweet reason where you know the the media elite talk basically to one another and pass the rest of the country. So I, I, I fear. That this will have an enervating effect on public debate because we missed an opportunity to really talk about race and how it matters. And I've, I've I've heard people suggest that this is good for for race relations. For example, I think it's awful. There are real issues about race relation I had I had a black client sentenced to 27 years on a crack cocaine case last week. Had it been powder cocaine, um, the sentence would have been far different. And there remains a lively debate about crack versus powder and its impact on communities of color. So I worry that this gives us the illusion of doing something at the cost of pushing everything toward the center where nothing really seems to get done.
1: We're not showing the outrage over the issues that really deserve the outrage, is kind of what you're saying.
2: That's, how, that's my fear. I don't know. It all happened so quickly, and I, I had to play catch-up. I mean, I heard about it and was busy, and then you know he was suspended, and I thought, wow, what's going on? And I've just been reading the papers and blogs like everybody else, I guess. Well,
3: I, I must say, I, I don't know that I... Agree with that. Although I'm now taking my lawyer hat off, of course, <laughs> since we've already put aside any question of really serious legal issues, I, I don't disagree that that it would have been interesting to have a more serious conversation about how these words entered the vocabulary. Mm-hmm. I mean, for the same reason, I don't think, as a libel lawyer, that the young women would even have a prayer of a lawsuit against him for libel. Um is this, is in part due to the fact that these expressions are epithets they' they're, they're, they're not statements of fact anymore because they've been so so well used if you will in the popular media in the popular culture in 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 black culture to some degree and and now by certainly in in white and 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 that would have been a very interesting conversation to have. And and it's not going to happen. Senator,
1: could you just educate us a little bit? We're not all uh, professionals in in media law, and you've written the book on libel law. Why wouldn't they have a case? What are the standards that would apply here?
3: Well, for, for starters, and the most important here is you have to have a false statement of fact. Somebody has to believe that some statement of fact was made about these young women. Um. I think what Imus said would clearly be held to have been, you know, an opinion, although that's using that term loosely, more of an epithet, name-calling. And I don't think anybody would have come away from his show having thought that he was really seriously saying that any one of these young women was a whore, W-H-O-R-E, It's name-calling. Name-calling does not, will not withstand, it will not support a suit for libel. There's also a doctrine of group libel, which says that if the group is of a certain size, then no one of them can sue when something disparaging or defamatory is said about them. I don't know whether this group was too big or not too big. I really think the case would fall on this question, of whether IMAS made a false statement of fact or a statement of fact at all.
4: I think it's also interesting, and I do kind of agree that that you know this was an opportunity perhaps to talk about bigger issues and maybe it's all uh it's that that moment has come and gone but but maybe not um there was a lot of outcry too about um you know- uh lyrics and things and songs that I think was a was a was a good point to be raised is all of these kind of name calling and, and uh expressions, particularly about women that appear in music, um, is 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 degrading and how maybe and and some of it's you know, and a lot of it is racially motivated. Um so what you know, what is the public going to do about it and, and why is IMIS unacceptable when it's acceptable in in some other kinds of music, like rap music specifically was mentioned.
1: Yeah, and that's been very much part of the debate, I think. I was was looking at a a post by Michelle Malkin, who's a columnist and blogger, and and she wrote uh, at length an analysis of uh, of some of the lyrics uh, that are being used among some of the the, the best-selling songs on the charts these days. Wait, where does the FCC come into all of this, if, if anywhere? I mean, we, we you know notoriously heard about, about Howard Stern abandoning the air, the airwaves uh, uh, a year ago, two years ago.
2: Yeah, Bob, um, could, one, could one of the media people also address the status of Sirius uh, Satellite Network and, and what it is? I mean, I, I, I frankly don't know, and I hear that as being an alternative and an unregulated one. I, I don't understand its relationship um, to the non-satellite airwaves.
3: Can I skip over the serious and go straight to the FCC? Because um, uh, the FCC should have no role in this. Um, There are anti-censorship provisions in the statute authorizing the commission to begin with. Um, In theory, uh, it it, it has some jurisdiction to look at profanity and indecency. Um, I, I, I think one of the the debates that has also gone undebated, if you will, or undone, is what the commission is doing, um, trying to censor Howard Stern for so-called profanity and indecency, um, which it has tried to do, and it's a rather expansive application of its um, jurisdiction to regulate, like I said, the profane or the indecent. But simple hate speech, if you will, or name-calling, generally would not be subject to sanction by the FCC. All
1: right. Well, stay with us for a second. We'll continue the discussion. We're going to take a short break here, and we'll be back in just a couple minutes.
0: We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession, As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Pleased the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day, or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our practice center sections. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at legaltalknetwork.com and become a member. It's free. Lawyer to lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to legaltalknetwork.com and send us an email.
3: If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781 781- We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show.
0: Did you know that Legal Talk Network shows are also available as CLE? Visit Law.com's CLE Center at www.clecenter.com. That's clecenter.com to enjoy listening and get CLE credit for your continuing legal education. Check out our Lawyer to Lawyer host blogs, j. Craig Williams' blog at mayhavepleasethecourt.com. Likewise, Robert Ambrogi's blog at legalline.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and of course, a healthy dose of humor and wit. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. That's 800 317 5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com.
1: Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi. Uh, my co host Jay Craig Williams is away this week. And we're talking about the legal rights and responsibilities of broadcasters in the wake of the uh, Don Imus firing yesterday. Like to welcome back Eileen O'Connor, counsel with Ora Carrington's uh, uh, office in Washington, D.C., and a 24-year veteran broadcast journalist, uh, attorney Norm Pattis, who's a, a criminal defense and civil rights lawyer in Connecticut and writer of the blog Crime and Federalism, and uh, Sandra Barron, an attorney and executive director of the Media Law Resource Center in New York City. And uh, Eileen, one of the one of the uh, areas that you focus on in, in your law practice is that of uh, crisis communications uh, and I and I wonder if you were advising CBS and MB, MSNBC here would you have advised them to handle it any differently than they did?
4: Well it's interesting I mean I think that um, I probably I may have uh, advised IMIS to handle it a little different and be quicker with an apology and be quicker in uh in getting a meeting with, in fact, the girls themselves, the team itself, and also making his apology, I think, a lot more substantive and uh, abject. I mean, in terms of crisis communication, the general uh, philosophy is to, to tell it all, tell it early, tell it yourself, say exactly what, you know, you feel you should have done or how you were wrong, how you're going to correct it, and how you're going to take measures to never do it again going forward. And I don't think that that his apology, as I've heard it, uh, was as fulsome, perhaps, and that probably added fuel to the fire. So in terms of crisis communications, I think he didn't necessarily do a great job. In terms of the networks themselves, they are, in fact, I think MSNBC being very quick to the mark, but they had a lot less to lose uh, in pulling his show, unlike CBS, which brought in tens of millions of dollars in advertising uh, on the radio show. MSNBC only brought in revenues, I think, of about 8.3 million a year. So they had a lot less to lose. So it was a lot easier for them, I think, to pull the plug and um, and to come out early and say, "This is, you know, this is what we're doing." And again, they were answering to public reaction. I think.
1: So it, I mean, do you think that had he responded uh, more directly and sooner, uh, we would have uh, viewed this crisis differently?
4: So and had been a lot more proactive about it. Um I know he went and went on the um interview the he went on the um Sharpton's interview show or radio show. But again, it's I think that a, a first step should have been to call, personally call the coach of the team and the team and to apologize to them and probably set up a an in person meeting with them before even Uh, going on someone else's show, and to show that he uh, was really and truly sorry for what he said about these young women.
1: Sandra Barron, what about you? You've represented broadcast companies, and now with the benefit of hindsight, uh, would you have handled this any differently or suggested that your clients handle it any differently?
3: Well, I'm sure I agree with Eileen. I mean, I don't have any doubt that the right way for him to have done this was to have made a full and abject and, and just how could i have possibly done this kind of apology almost immediately um and to get in touch with the young women um I, you know beyond that it it's hard to second guess somebody else you know it, it it's so difficult uh, the good news was i mean and i say this cuz i'm a lawyer and i'm not a corporate communications person is I don't think that they had to spend a whole lot of time worrying about the legal consequences of it. Um, they were faced with an enormous public relations problem.
1: What about going forward, are, Norm? Let me ask you. I mean, I mean, are broadcasters uh, or are are those who who uh, appear uh, on radio and television programs going to feel stifled by this? I mean, is is the debate going to be further stifled going forward because of what's happened with Don Imus?
2: I think it is I, I appear regularly on a talk on a radio show in Connecticut and was a guest this morning and was talking to the the personalities yesterday in anticipation of the show and they're worried i mean you know what next i i you know i i'm not sure i i'm not a, a media professional, I don't advise media companies or media personalities, so I'm way out of my depth here. But I would much rather than see Don Imus apologize, which takes back nothing. I would have preferred that he go on the Sharpton show and say, you know, I have unresolved issues about race, and so do you. Let's talk about how we're going to get over the color line instead of clubbing one another to death with it. So I don't know that I would have counseled an abject apology straight up. I would have acknowledged the content of the comment and acknowledge that it reflected unresolved tensions in american life handling it in this way tells people that when we let when we shine light on attitudes that are widespread in our society people will be punished and that drives them deeper rather than into the light of day so going forward i think there'll be a chilling effect if, you know i think uh, what i'm hearing some broadcasters i know say is if it can happen to IMIS, it can happen to anyone and i think the result will be uh, chill, and I don't use that in the. Well, I mean, maybe I do use it in the legal sense. I mean, a certain hesitancy to speak vigorously and boldly. Now, in the well, context, I, I mean, sorry.
4: I agree with you that I think that's unhelpful, and I agree with you that I think it would have been incredibly helpful to say, "Look, this," and for Imus and that, and and on the Sharpton show, and for Sharpton too, to talk about uh, his own <laughs> issues with race, mm-hmm. um, and for the country to have a really fulsome discussion on race and other uh, biases. Uh, against uh, people for gender, ethnicity, and sexual orientation. Uh, but I also think, though, that at a certain point, um, it is it is healthy for the public and for people to start saying, no, it is not okay to call uh, young women whores uh, on the airwaves. It's not okay for Rush that- Limbaugh to make statements that are completely false. In the guise of opinion, and I think it's healthy for people to say no. That does not. That is not useful in America. And don't you think that kind of talk actually also helps foster uh, racial biases and bigotry? I mean, that's, I, that's the an interesting that...
2: question. I no, I don't actually. But then again, I, you know, I don't really. I don't listen to Imus. I don't listen to Sharpton. I know who uh, Rush Limbaugh is, and I've listened to him. I, I view this as emotive speech that lets off steam, and I think that the steam is out there. And if you don't let it off in, in, in speech, it might come out in behavior. So when I hear Imus popping off, I'm like Jesus. You know, excuse my language. I'm, being, you know, I just offended somebody there. Here we go with the chilling effect. <laughs> but when I hear Imus popping off, I'm like, God, you know, who is this guy? Now my wife about couch. You know, about banished me to the couch when I said I thought it was outrageous what had happened, and she point blank said, "Well, how would you feel if Imus referred to your daughter as an nappy-headed hoe?" And I'm, I'm white as, 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 by accident of birth, but I, I said, you know, I, would, I could care less what he'd say about my daughter. Um, his ability to say it, though, um, is, is important to me somehow. So do I think that in, in primetime television we want, you know, we want people cursing one another out? No. But the radio is a, is, is a ventilator. And, you know, I don't know that Rush Limbaugh is anybody's idea of the gospel. And if he is, they're going to get it whether he's on the air or not, and maybe they'll get it off as of serious. So I I, I, any, I I like vigorous speech. I like provocative speech. Um, I'm sorry to see I must go.
3: I don't think I must reflected the majority. I think that's why he got banished for this statement. And I don't think this is going to have any impact whatsoever on Rush Limbaugh yeah. or any of the other, um, uh, putting it charitably, provocative speakers on the right, or perhaps the handful on the left. Um, I think Imus got tagged because he did cross the line for a huge percentage of Americans. He was not talking about politics. He was not talking about public figures. He was talking about young girls. And ironically, I think it's going to be a very narrow kind of application of American outrage because I don't think it's going to have any effect whatsoever at all of the screaming and yelling that goes on in our political and social realms. So on one hand, Eileen, I don't think it's going to have the far-reaching impact that you would like to see it. And, Norm, I think the good news is I don't think it's going to have much impact either. Um, I think much is going to go on just as it did.
4: Yeah, I no, I agree with you. I don't think it will have that great of impact. But I guess what I'm trying to say, and maybe it's because I was, you know, as a correspondent on, in the news business from the, you know, late 70s on and into, you know, 2001, I watched the news business change from from a business that was considered a public service for the networks and was never destined to make money, in fact, used to lose money on a regular basis, to a huge profit center. And, um, when, and what also happened was, Throughout the years, the standards and practices that we had adhered to flipped in terms of sourcing for stories, as well as, I mean, I remember having producers and executives say, well, you know, uh, you, you don't want to be so, you want to be more edgy. Tell us what you think uh, is who's really right here in this story and i you know i'm in the i'm covering the white house at the time and political issues and i just felt that that's not really the job of a reporter um because i think that you know the first amendment actually enables us gives us great powers especially to the fourth estate but that there's a responsibility by the press to actually Help inform viewers in a in a in a healthy way with facts and information that they need. And and unfortunately, I guess that's why I hope that there would be some kind of of outrage over the likes of of Rush Limbaugh, Bill O'Reilly. But
2: do you really view them as serious journalists? When I want
4: news, I don't. But unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of people out there actually who do view them as serious journalists. Really, that's the problem, Norm. You no, I'm listening. Don't. yeah. And th- But there are many people that take their news off of Bill O'Reilly and think that he speaks the gospel truth. And How much of the this part-
2: change in the news media culture was driven by the advent of cable and alternative networks and the need to spice it up? Well,
1: thankfully, we have Comedy Central to bring us the real news. Oh. Uh, yes, right. But I, unfortunately, we are nearing the end of our time here. And I, I, uh, I, I like to wrap up by giving everybody a chance to, to give their final thoughts uh, Eileen, you, you might have just given us your final thoughts, uh, uh, but uh, let me ask if you had anything you wanted to add to that and, and also just let our listeners know where they can find out more about you if they'd like to do that.
4: Um, well, you can go to the website um, com, and our practice is the legal strategic communications law practice. Um, but uh, no, and I, I think that is my final thought. I mean, I do, I do think Norm is right that it would be unfortunate if – if this chills speech, and it would be better if this actually led to a vigorous debate about about race and about other issues that are dividing our country um, at this time.
1: And, Norm Pattis, uh, let's have your final thoughts and, and tell our listeners where they can find more about you and your law practice.
2: Um, my blog at Crime and Federalism, um, I'm located in central Connecticut, and my practice is confined largely to Connecticut. Um, Um, My final thoughts are I'm sorry to see a notorious Big Mouth be silenced and hope he reemerges because those couple times a year when I want the equivalent of a double jolt of verbal caffeine, I'll want to know where to find him.
3: And
1: Sandra Barron, the final word goes to you, and let our listeners know also where they can find out more about the Media Law Resource Center.
3: Well, they can certainly find us at medialaw.org, and in fact we even offer a number of at least modest um, bits of information for the public to download on what is libel and, and, and the like. Um, I, I don't know that I have anything further of, of any great insight to add. I, I'm sorry to see Imus go as well. If nothing else, he was sort of a verbal institution on air. Um, to the extent, however, it's a cautionary tale to those who who are... Um, speaking to the public that there really sometimes are lines that 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 the community really does sometimes have norms and sometimes those norms shift. Pay attention. Um, I don't know. I guess there may be some value that comes out of the uh, the event in the long run.
1: Well, thank you very much to all of our guests. This has been a, a great discussion, and uh, although I think we've decided uh, this isn't uh, so much a legal issue as a as a social and uh, and perhaps moral and and ethical issue, uh, but uh, it's been a fascinating discussion and it's enlightened me for sure. So, thank you all for participating. Thank you, for and that's it. Uh, Lawyer Lawyer will be back next week with Jay Craig Williams joining me.
0: Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Imbrochi. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com.